The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Hi, I'm Rich Vogel. I'm a board-certified neurophysiologist and co-chair and co-founder of the section on intraoperative neurophysiologic monitoring. If you're one of our regular listeners, you know that this podcast is a series about neuromonitoring, and it covers a wide range of educational topics. You also know that I typically do this podcast with my partner in crime, Dr. Adam Doan. But uh, this, this year, this season, we're changing things up a little bit, and we're doing some interviews with our colleagues who are experts and uh, also share our interest in advancing global spine care. So today, I'm joined by Dr. John Ney. Um, John is a board-certified neurologist and clinical neurophysiologist um, with research interests in comparative effectiveness, outcomes research, and health economics. He's involved in active clinical trials, which utilize patient-reported metrics and has published uh, economic decision models, systematic reviews, and meta-analyses. We can count neural monitoring among his many clinical interests. John and I served together on the board of directors for the American Society of Neurophysiologic Monitoring, and we're both founding members of the NAS section on intraoperative neuromonitoring. John, it's great to have you here with us today. Thanks, Rich. It's great to be here. So you might not be aware of this, uh, but Adam and I actually laid the foundation for this discussion in one of our episodes this season of this podcast in which we, we were talking about challenges associated with estimating the number of spine surgeries that are monitored in the U.S. each year. And we mentioned just kind of in passing that it would be misleading to rely on administrative data to make such an estimation. And um, in the interest of foreshadowing, we said, well, we're gonna be talking to Dr. John Ney in a, few, in a few months and we can talk more about this. So uh, the goal today is to dive a little bit deeper into administrative data. So when we talk about that concept, let's just go back to the basics. What are administrative data? Right, so um, every hospitalization, really every time a patient is touched by healthcare, there's data that's created. And that data can be clinical data, but there's also administrative data that's created for billing purposes and data that's reported to government agencies. And administrative data generally has very little in the way of actually direct clinical uh, evaluation or, or knowledge that's translated into it. It's really data that is coded for diagnoses, coded for particular uh, either surgeries or other procedures. And you know, the point of administrative data to a large degree is to create a record so that a hospital or a company can bill the appropriate third-party payer and uh, that any services that are provided are reimbursed appropriately. So, so that's generally what administrative data is. So just think of it, it's not through chart review, it's through coding. It's usually done by professional coders and sometimes by physicians or other providers. And usually um, it doesn't correlate super well with what actually happened during, mm -hmm. during the event or the procedure. And it may not be very granular, but it's often the best that we have, especially when we're looking at uh, issues where you have um, 
a need for a very large sample size that would be impossible to, to try to figure out through chart review, that it would require an army of chart reviewers to, to get through enough sample to, to really settle any clinical question. So, so you mentioned the very large sample size. What, what are the other benefits to using administrative data for research purposes? So, you know, if you were to compare versus a randomized clinical trial, you know, RCTs are exceedingly expensive. You have to recruit patients. They're done prospectively. You know, administrative data is always collected. Uh, it is available. It is relatively cheap. In some cases, it is free. But uh, there are insurers who bundle their data sets and uh, they sell those to uh, health services researchers and uh, other providers and uh, for analysis. And generally, you're talking orders of magnitude less in terms of expense compared to a randomized clinical trial. And, and if we're looking at an at a administrative data uh, or study that uses administrative data, what are we looking for in that study? Right, so you wanna see that the population of interest is appropriately identified. So in the case of intraoperative monitoring, we think about uh, if we're looking at spine surgeries, we wanna make sure that these were actually the surgeries that were done and that we're not misidentifying patients. Likewise, uh, you wanna make sure that uh, your intervention or your exposure of interest, usually for our purposes, intraoperative monitoring, is uh, identified correctly. And you know that's, it sounds like it should be relatively easy to do, but sometimes it isn't. And often you know, because the codes are maybe inconsistently reported and there may be disincentives for reporting some codes, then uh, you know, there may be more IOM that's actually happening than what's reported. And that, uh, that can be an issue as well. So, uh, and then you want to find uh, an appropriate outcome that can be uh, answered by the data that is available. And, you know, there are some data sets where it's really just a single episode of care. So, say, an inpatient hospitalization, and all that you have is the beginning of the hospitalization, everything that happened during the hospitalization, and then the end of the hospitalization. You don't know anything that happened prior to that. You don't know anything that happened after that. You have to rely on administrative coding to assume that, uh, that things that occurred during the, the hospitalization actually did occur there and were um, reported correctly as opposed to existing prior to admission. And you don't know what happened after the discharge. So, you know, some of the more important outcomes that we may see in IOM may not even be realized until after the patient is let go from the hospital. Interesting. So just diving a little bit deeper in, in terms of how, how neuromonitoring is identified or evaluated in spine surgery, uh, how, how is that done using administrative claim studies? Right, so, so there are two major coding systems that are utilized to identify procedures. And in the inpatient setting, it's largely done through uh, ICD or International Classification of Disease uh, procedural coding. And uh, in ICD-9, so you know, prior to 2015, there was only one code for intraoperative monitoring and that covered everything, including you know, SSEPs, uh, MEPs, uh, EMG, 
and you know any uh, other uh, codes that would be utilized or any other modalities. Um, and you know to that degree, it was not very granular. It didn't say how long the patient was monitored for. It didn't say if there was a portion of the procedure that was being monitored or the entire procedure. So you don't really know the, the timing of it. Um, and with some of the data sets, you just know that it happens sometime during the, the hospitalization. So it may not have even necessarily happened with a spine procedure. There may have been another procedure for which intraoperative monitoring was done. Hmm. Yeah, and, and it sounds like it's a lot of possibility for confounding variables to emerge in, in these studies. So how do you deal with those? So uh, you make the best of what you have. So again, you're reliant on coding. Um, often there is at least you know, age and gender information. Uh, some of the additional coding that may be available may allow you to come up with a risk adjustment score. There's a, a adjustment score called a Charlson, which takes a variety of medical conditions and then compresses them into a single score to allow you to compare patients who are similar in their levels of, of illness overall in their generalized health. Um, there's an Ellickshauser score, which does a very similar thing, is more utilized on an inpatient than an outpatient basis. So you want to take patients who had similar procedures, who ideally are going to have similar degrees of comorbidity, um, you know, also adjust for age, adjust for gender, and uh, any other um, procedures that were done on them at the same time, and any other relevant diagnoses. So and, thinking about how administrative um, data have been used in spine surgery for neuromonitoring thus far, uh, what have whatever available studies have been published, what have they shown? So it's a pretty mixed bag that's been out there thus far. So uh, one of the, the first studies that, that came out that used large-scale administrative data was the Cole et al. study, um, which used Truven market scan and uh, looked at a number of different procedures um, and uh, used a, a methodology referred to as propensity score matching, where you're trying to determine the latent tendency of the, uh, of the intervention occurring and then use that as a way of pseudo-randomizing uh, your two groups, those who got IOM and those who didn't. So it's a way of attempting to control for selection bias. Um, and then the, the matching part, um, because in, in this particular study and in most studies, IOM uh, is reported in the, the minority of cases, um, they match um, on a uh, several parts to one uh, matching algorithm, but managed also to, to remove a lot of the sample through matching, which again is not ideal if the goal is to increase your sample size so that you can try to figure out uh, what happens with outcomes that are relatively uncommon. So, mm-hmm. So, so that was one. There have been multiple studies since that time, and I'd be happy to elaborate on those if you'd like. Yeah, I mean, let's 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 jump into one or two. So, um, you know, I think we're aware of studies that have used, um, say, Humana uh, claims database like um, like Pearl Diver, um, 
mm-hmm. which um, maybe you could talk about the, the benefits and limitations of using something like that and, and um, what, what conclusions might be drawn from, from that type of a study. Right. So, so the Pearl Diver data set is reliant on Medicare and uh, Medicare Advantage uh, data, which is all fine and good, but it's largely an over 65 population. And if you look at the average person who's receiving, say, an anterior cervical discectomy and fusion, um, it's a 50-year-old male. So somebody who's actually working age. So you know, you're already dealing with a population that may be kind of older and sicker and have other comorbidities than a typical population um, who's who's otherwise going to receive spine surgery and and or IOM. Uh, you know, so so it's a bit problematic from that vantage point. They used um, current procedure terminology coding. They didn't actually use a a, a direct code for. Uh, IOM or IONM. So there are time-based CPT codes for IOM and that, those were not used. They used the baseline modalities for SSAP and uh, MEP and EMG and uh, looked at, uh, um, I believe, anterior cervical, um, posterior lumbar fusions, uh, and uh, I think some, uh, I think there was another thoracolumbar uh, um, study that was done. And, and, you know, again, they're, they're using uh, a methodology that tended to limit the sample size. They might not have correctly identified whether or not IOM actually occurred. Um, And, uh, and they're doing it in a population that may or may not be representative. So each of these uh, claims or the database reports, what was actually paid so neuromonitoring was reimbursed um but any monitoring that occurred that was not reimbursed which is a fair amount of neuromonitoring would not have been included in that study is it correct Uh, so so that's correct and you know also because they're just looking at the baseline modalities they didn't actually verify whether those modalities occurred in the context of neuromonitoring so for example somebody who who got billed for an emg um, during a hospitalization uh, would would be included in this data set if they received a, a, the appropriate spine surgery, whether or not the EMG was actually done during the the operation itself. Right. So, yeah. so so it was a little bit problematic. And then, you know, the title of it kind of, you know, of these three papers essentially, you know, wrote themselves, which is, you know, use of IOM in, you know, insert surgery type X, um, you know, is questionable. And, you know, essentially that they, they um, either did not find a, a significant difference in the neurological complications that occurred um, in, for, for patients in IOM versus uh, non-IOM groups, or that it wasn't significant enough to, to um, reach a, a p-value of uh, 0.05 or less. Right. And I guess the, the, the secondary argument was there was that neuromonitoring is actually declining in use when it's actually declining in reimbursement. I guess that leads into right. the limitations of, of using administrative claims in general, just kind of high level. What are the, what are the major limitations that we think about? Right. So, so, you know, again, it's not chart review. You're not, you're not verifying absolutely whether 
IOM occurred and there's there's disincentive for uh, reporting IOM in some cases, and that may be just by virtue of, of how the interoperative monitoring time-based codes are reported and required to, to so that uh, there's no simultaneous monitoring or no, no or presumption of no simultaneous monitoring for reimbursement purposes. So it's certainly possible, and I suspect that the majority of monitoring that occurs in the United States uh, is done uh, under the supervision of a physician who's watching more than one case at a time. Now, how that individual gets reimbursed, I think, is is, is a little bit problematic in terms of, of representation of what is actually happening in multiple surgeries. So, so I think that's a big issue. Yeah. Um, and, and last question for you, just to kind of wrap this up, but thinking about moving forward, what are, what are some uh, future steps in terms of administrative uh, data and, and uh, neural monitoring? Well, so I, I think ideally we need more longitudinal studies. We need more studies that look you know, six months prior to when the surgery occurred to one year out from when the surgery occurred. So one example of that kind of study is one that I did with an economist at Stanford. It, it got published in 2015 and was on uh, single level cervical surgeries and showed that even though there was about $1,200 of incurred cost during the, the hospitalization that in the subsequent year, um, those individuals who received intraoperative monitoring were actually uh, saved a, a total of $380 compared to those who didn't. That includes the hospitalization-related uh, difference in, in costs as well. Um, so in addition to the fact that they had fewer neurological complications, they uh, were less likely to be on opiates at one year compared to those who didn't receive IOM. So, you know, it suggests that um, at least when you take a longer look that the benefits of IOM are not just confined to the hospitalization itself, but can extend uh, far beyond it. And, you know, that there are other issues with regards to things like quality of life that largely we're not measuring and that, that ideally we should be. So, so that's one thing. I think another is, you know, if IOM is occurring in you know, less than 50% of spine surgeries, then there may be an argument for potentially at some point doing a form of pragmatic randomized controlled tri trial so that you can see whether or not IOM is actually effective. You can determine whether IOM was actually done. You can do it in a prospective fashion. You can use all the same monitoring modalities so that you reduce the heterogeneity of every you know, study that, that's done and you can make it highly granular. So I think ultimately that's something that should be done. I don't know if it will be because, you know, like anything else, it costs money to do RCT and it may cost you know, in the tens of millions of dollars to get in a, a large enough sample size to show that IOM really makes a, a substantial difference if neurological complication rates are 1% or less. Agreed. Well, something for the audience to think about. We certainly have a lot of people in NAS who have uh, an interest in, um, in determining whether or not uh, neuromonitoring for various procedures is both uh, useful and valuable. So 
Dr. John Ney, thank you so much for joining us and uh, sharing your expertise. And to the, uh, to the rest of the audience, we'll be back next month with another interview. So thanks for tuning in. Okay. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.